Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We're going to start on a very serious subject matter. Everybody really has been talking about surgery, surgery wait times, access to health care, how burnt out and 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 how just stretched to the max our frontline healthcare workers are thank you covid-19 thank you to this pandemic for for putting what, what was already a stress system into a next level some stats are in and they are astounding the CIHI the Canadian Institute for Health Information an independent organization that compiles and analyzes health health system data has put out a report, and, and the numbers are astounding, just, just one off the top. CIHI found roughly 743,000 fewer surgeries were performed in this country during the first two and a half years of the pandemic. A drop of about 13% compared to 2019. And the, the facts are clear. We were already lining up for surgeries before the pandemic, so to be down 743,000 surgeries how do you clear that backlog? How do you clear that backlog with a healthcare system that has been so maxed and stressed that we've seen people simply incapable of continuing in these vital roles of physicians, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners, hospital caregivers? I mean, all, everybody is so stressed out and maxed and, and you can hardly blame them thinking, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Or looking at it as a, as a, a calling that no longer is one that people aspire to because it is so difficult not to mention sometimes filled with negativity and in some instances harassment it's a such a precarious place we find ourselves in right now the pandemic continuing to impact our healthcare system and as i mentioned we all feel it whether by that shortage of physicians do you have a gp have you been to an emergency room lately seeing some rural emergency rooms closed due to staffing shortages the burnout the backlogs, the stacks, as I say, they're in and they're scary. And to talk through how the struggle to return to pre-pandemic norms is hitting middle and lower income Canadians hardest in particular, we welcome back good friend of the show, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. Thank you for doing this, Doc. Jody, no problem. Happy to do it. You've been sounding the alarm on this uh, rather unpopular, popularly to uh, those who uh, manage our healthcare system higher up. You're fearless in your clarity on, on having to sound the alarm. What do you see here with this CIHI um, report? When you look at the report, I mean, the, the big glaring thing is that we just we just don't have enough people working in healthcare, right? So, you know, you look at the overtime hours for maybe the preceding year, you know, it's something like 9,000 full-time equivalent positions that were done in overtime hours in Canada, right? So, you know, people are working harder and harder. And I, I see that on the front lines, like people are just, just burnt out, um, you know, and the intensity of the work is, is higher as well, not just the, the total hours that you're <clears throat> that you're there, right? I mean, if you're looking after people in a hallway, it's it's a lot harder than, you know, if you're looking after people in a in a proper room. You know, your workload might be doubled or tripled because you just have more people to look after. Um, so it's a real problem. We we did develop a backlog through the pandemic, um, you know, with surgeries and other things. A lot of that's getting cleared up, but 
you know, now it's just we've got a population that's ballooning. We've got a population that's getting older. Um, there's less yeah. people working in the system. There's higher demand. A lot of people delayed care through the pandemic. Um, and, and you and I have talked about this before. A lot of people can't access a, a primary care physician. So then, you know, their diagnosis is delayed. And, and when they then present to care, they're sicker. They're more complicated. They, you know, need more invasive treatment um, than if something was caught early. I, I, um, I shouldn't probably say this out loud on the radio, but I had two weeks ago, I had two two physicians come into my office because they didn't know really where else to go to get care. Um, and so when physicians wow. are kind of walking in saying, I don't really know how to access the system, you know, it, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that we have a big problem when people working in the system have trouble accessing the system. Well, that is shocking. It actually makes my, my stomach drop to think that that is a reality in today's precarious place, as I, as I said, you know, it just, it all feels like it's held together by threads in this moment. And yet there's money being thrown around, but money for what, where is it going? How is it helping you boots on the ground? Well, Judy, I think there's the problem, right? And, and, and governments, you know, you know, I, they aren't totally certain what to do. I don't think anybody's totally certain what to do. Throwing money at it is, is in my view not the solution though we we need to really step back and look at the whole way that we have people work in the system you know right now in in surrey surrey's often in the news their hospital they they don't have enough physicians to look after patients in in the hospital so they they throw huge sums of money at that you know i can tell you i mean they they are paying people you know, sometimes upwards of $5,000 a day and people are not signing up for those shifts. They just cannot get people to do it. This is from a physician, a physician level. That's exorbitant. That's insane. Nobody should be paid that much. Um, But they still can't get people to do it. So it's not, it's not a money problem. It's a working condition problem. And it's a, it's a, you know, lack of, of, human resource problem but but then we really need to step back and and get more people licensed you know you, a great example is the whole radiation thing where we're sending patients down to the united states you know we we run things at like 120 percent capacity in canada so there's no wiggle room you know the states their system is not ideal but you know they kind of run at 80 percent capacity they, they've got this spare capacity so they could absorb those extra canadian patients without any impact on their own patients. Um, we just, we don't have any spare capacity. We've not built that into the system. Now, you know, that's not easy to do, but I think it has to be part of the long-term planning. It really does. And, and that's the terrifying bit. You mentioned, you know, treating somebody in a hallway, you know, have, having, I think the last time we spoke, you had somebody say, I'm, I'm scheduled as your hallway nurse today. You know, yeah. we're scheduling people for hallway nurses. The capacity is a problem. And certainly there are beds being taken up by people who have no place else to go. There's a domino effect of uh, Keith Baldry and I were talking about this. He's got a column in the North Shore News right now about long-term care. And you said it, we've got an aging population and people without plans, people without places to go, stuck in a bed. And and Absolutely. the domino effect of that is is very, very real. I, I wonder, Kevin... I'm with Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. We are friends each other on social media, and you are an excellent follow on Twitter, by the way, or whatever we're calling it now, X, uh, at Doc Kevin McLeod. Uh, it's, 
it strikes me that we go back to something that we've talked about a couple of times in how perhaps, while there's no silver bullet, the modernization of our healthcare system might streamline things so that people like yourself spend less time navigating an archaic sort of administrative side um, that has so many hoops set up. And as you said, physicians who don't even know how to navigate the system uh, coming into your office to talk it through. Is there a way to urgently call for that to be um, fixed or shifted? Even just recently having to navigate more than one health region, I found it astounding how differently the two health regions that I was one foot in each work. It was like starting from scratch. No, there was insane. so much it's duplication. An, yeah. I mean, it, you know, we, we need, we need like three or four people who are at, you know, the minister of health level who are in a room who look at some of these problems and can actually make the phone calls and say, this is going to be fixed today. Right. I mean, some of these things are not hugely complicated. Good example. So, you know, I have patients who used to live in North Vancouver. They can't afford to live here anymore. So they've moved to another community, but their physicians here I'm seeing them as their physician here. Now, I need to give them an infusion of something at a hospital for their care. But, you know, the local hospital is going to say, well, they're not from this, this health region anymore. You, you need to give it to them in Richmond. Okay, well, I don't have yeah. privileges at Richmond Hospital. So do I have to refer them to another doctor, cost the system more, who's going to give the same darn thing? You know, little things like that that are just infuriating bureaucracy. You know, another good example um, really amazing family physician who was one of the first family physicians to go through the Lionsgate program here. She's competent. She's got a great big family practice doing really sort of what we need, what, what the, the community needs. Um, and her, her husband um, has been trying to complete his training here for ages. You know, he, he did um, the bulk of his training at the Mayo Clinic. Um, I've had him work in my office. He's, totally competent, would make a very good family physician, but all these bureaucratic hoops he's been trying to jump through for multiple years. And finally, you know, the two of them understandably gave up and said, we just can't keep going through the the bureaucracy. They do not want to move to the United States. They don't want to leave the community. And, And here now they're moving down to Oregon, where the licensing was very straightforward and done. So we lose him as a potential family doctor and, and her practice of, you know, 1,300 patients or whatever it is, they all get a, a nice letter now saying, you know, you no longer have a family doctor. You know, so it, it things like that, like it just, it's insane. It drives me bananas. Um, you know, you see recently this story of this, this um, doctor has been working in Australia for 10 years. They have a very good training system there. And, and she can't get licensed here. It became a big media story. So some phone calls get made and she's licensed. But it, it just, it shouldn't be, hey, you got to you gotta get who the story out there in the media and who you know. Yeah. yeah. That just, you can't run a system like that, right? No, you can't. Kevin, thank you for doing this. And maybe if we keep saying it out loud, we'll find a way to use this platform, to use our voices to trigger some system that might not require somebody going to the media with their individual story in order to get the certification that should have been a no-brainer at a time where we need these skilled workers uh, more than ever. And, and I know I've kept you longer than I said I would. Uh, Doc, thank you for doing this. And, and I know Anytime. you have a busy day in front of you. You always do. That's Dr. Kevin so McLeod. while we're talking, medicine, I'm working away. So yeah. you probably hear the keyboard. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> here. You stay safe. Have a good day.
it's time to talk housing housing plans in vancouver another topic that gets rolled over a lot but there's a great article in the vancouver sun penned by our next guest dan fumano basically we're talking about this housing crisis searching for answers no single silver bullet per se we've talked towers we talked temporary modular housing easing restrictions on laneway housing gentle density speeding up permitting massive upzoning is something that is often discussed because there's been so much nimbyism that it, more and more we're getting closer and closer it seems to the upzone being the reality if you're going to live in the city you can't be fighting against uh, higher density in your neighborhoods than it once was decades ago. Again, our next guest has researched this subject matter as he does in his award-winning fashion, penned a great Vancouver Sun piece on this. Highly recommend you read the fur full piece penned by Dan Fumano, who joins us on the line. Dan, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, Jody. Well, I find myself reading along here as a born and raised Vancouverite, and there's some things that I'm like, yes, and then things like, oh, damn, because it always seems like there might be an answer to what ails us, and yet there's always, it seems, something that causes it to not be that that silver bullet we're searching for in this housing affordability and, and supply crisis. What did you learn in this? Well, essentially what this recent uh, column is about, um, it's about... A, a new set of proposed bylaw and zoning amendments that are going to come to Vancouver City Council in September for a final debate and decision. And what this is, this is the result of years of work that City Hall has been working towards uh, basically trying to figure out how to add density to all of the low-density residential neighborhoods of Vancouver. So in terms of the amount of land that these changes covers, it's huge. This is like most of Vancouver's land, because if you look at a zoning map of Vancouver, uh, the vast, vast majority of Vancouver's residential land is made up mostly of single detached houses and in some, case, some cases, duplexes. What city staff have come up with here is some new proposals that would enable people to build between you know, two, three, four, five, or six, or in some cases, even eight units on a single lot, depending on the size of the lot. And um, there's additional uh, units for uh, rentals compared to strata. So it's a significant change. But, um, you know, of course, as with any time we talk about these kinds of housing changes or changes to uh, a big part of the city's residential neighborhoods, for some people, this doesn't go nearly far enough. And then other people say this is way too big of a change and way too blunt of a tool. So, you know, I, I think it'll be an interesting debate as we watch in September as the city council will be considering this. Right. So the Yimbies and the NIMBYs, the yes in my backyards and the no in my backyards are pretty far apart here. Um, and yet the, this is a this is something that staff has been studying for quite some time. And we've seen other jurisdictions yeah. You know, in Vancouver Island, they've said, you know what? We're up zoning. We're just going to do it. Yeah. We're just, we need to do it and we got to do it and get ready because it's happening. Uh, how does that play out here versus there? Or is this the well, first of many dominoes to fall like this? Well, yeah, no, I, I mean, as you say, Vancouver is not the first uh, jurisdiction to follow something like this. Um, Vancouver is not the only jurisdiction that has housing problems. So other right. uh, municipal governments elsewhere in North America um, have tried to pursue these kinds of missing middle. And when we talk about missing middle, what we're talking about is kind of everything in between 
of a detached house or a duplex, sort of low density housing and, you know, high rises. So Vancouver has yeah. plenty of residential high rises, apartment buildings, condo towers, and we have lots and lots of low density houses, but there's not a ton of stuff that's in between kind of mid rise five, you know, five units, 10 units, like sort of medium density. Um, and so that's what they talk about missing middle. And again, it's not unique to Vancouver. Now you mentioned on Vancouver Island, the, the city of Victoria, they implemented their own missing middle um, housing initiative. Uh, I can't remember when exactly it was. I think it was implemented in January. But um, I think you're right. what we've heard is that so far, uh, or at least as of a, a couple of weeks ago, they had received exactly zero applications in the first, what, seven, eight months of the program for zero builders looking to actually build these projects. So I don't know the details of the Victoria example as well, but it seemed to suggest that for whatever reason, the policies they had crafted there don't seem to be penciling out or don't seem to be viable projects uh, in the eyes of builders. Uh, now, I, obviously, Vancouver's policies have not been approved yet. Uh, it's entirely possible, count, you know, council might try to amend them in, in one way or another. Um, but I've talked to builders here in Vancouver who believe that if council does approve these policies, um, these amendments, they do think that some of these projects could be viable. Now, it doesn't mean that every type of project would be viable in every part of the city, but they do think that, you know, you might start seeing some different kinds of housing coming to neighborhoods that haven't seen those kinds of projects before, you know, fourplexes, sixplexes, those kinds of things um, on sort of quiet residential side streets that currently are dominated mostly by detached houses. So builders who I have spoken with do feel like at least some of these projects would be viable, and then, you know, a couple of years from now, depending on what happens with interest rates, construction costs, material costs, that can obviously change things, too. And those things are obviously outside of the control of a municipal council or city hall staff. We're talking with Dan Fumano, city uh, columnist for the Vancouver Sun. And, and in reading your column, I found it really interesting when you get into the details of this, the difference in the permitting costs of building what what you suggest there with that missing middle, the gentle density, the, the, the taking a single family dwelling lot and then creating homes for multiple families on that same footprint and how builders would need to pay sort of density bonus contributions to city hall and, and, and charges mm. like, it, will it be cheaper to just keep building the mansions, Dan? Yeah, that's the sort of the, the the mansion test. That was a quote that I used in the um, in the article from a builder uh, who specializes in sort of laneway houses and duplexes. Uh, his name is Bryn Davidson, and so Bryn, who, who's been kind of you know they built some of the earliest laneway houses in Vancouver a decade plus ago when they first came in, and Bryn talks about the mansion test. If you're talking about approving a new kind of housing, you know, ten years ago it was laneway houses in Vancouver, and now they're talking about multiplexes. He's saying, yeah. is it more difficult or is it easier to get a permit to build a mansion? And in this case, um, if you did, hypothetically, if you had a big lot in Shaughnessy and you wanted to get a permit to build a you know 8,000 square foot house or whatever, however many millions that might cost to build and how much it might cost to buy, it's easier to get a permit to build that than it would be to get a permit to build a four-unit multiplex in a residential neighborhood because the four-unit multiplex would require sort of additional layers of uh, approvals. And the, the, the approval process is just a little bit more, it, it requires more steps. Now, other people could argue that there's perfectly good reasons that approving multi-unit 
uh, housing is more onerous or is a, it's more difficult approval process than approving a single house. But Bryn and some other people, you know, Bryn, this builder, he's arguing he thinks it would be good if the kind of housing that we agree there's a bigger need for, as in multi-unit, uh, more affordable, denser housing, if that kind of housing was as easy or possibly even easier than building a, you know, eight or 10,000 square foot mansion, which we agree there's not a huge need for that. There's not a dire shortage of mansions in Vancouver. Mansions. No, no, so certainly not. That, yeah. And that's not to say that every detached house in the city is a mansion, but of course, even relatively modest detached houses that a generation or two ago, sort of, you know, average working families might have been able to buy. Those are, have, the situation has just changed so much, obviously, in the last number of years where detached houses, even in any neighborhood of the city, are kind of beyond, uh, they're not attainable for the vast majority of working people here unless, you know, there's intergenerational wealth or something like that. So the situation obviously has just changed so much over the last years and decades. And when we're talking about the the staff research on this, doing the work, bringing it to council, going to you know going to be tabled in the fall for discussion, you've covered the city of Vancouver for a long time. You know the minutia of the the red tape and the complexities of city hall. Could we not come to a place where there could be a standard cookie cutter? If mm. you build it this way, it is a fast track permit. Is is that just? Yeah. Am I am I living in an oversimplified world, thinking that that might be an an answer? No, I think that I think there there are a lot of discussions around that, around trying to, and and actually that is a significant part of these proposals going to council. I is about simplifying things. You know, they've taken. I can't remember the exact number, but there were, previously there were seven or eight or nine different um, zones, residential zones, and they've, yeah. they've kind of simplified all these zones into one zone. And some of the builders have told me that, you know, some of these simplifications, in the view of builders, some of these simplifications and, you know, cutting red tape, City Hall actually deserves a lot of credit for this. It's stuff that the building industry, home building industry has been calling for for years and years and years. So some of that stuff has not received as much attention in the media so far, including in stuff I've written. I haven't really looked at, at that element of this proposal. We've kind of focused more on, um, you know, proposals to increase the number of units on a single lot. There's also another interesting yeah. proposal to discourage single detached houses by reducing the maximum size that they can be built. That's another thing. Right. But that is, that is something City Hall is trying to move toward, and it, it is certainly a top, top priority for this mayor and council. Ken Salmon, ABC, was elected last year. Big, you know, landslide win. And one of their biggest, uh, you know, campaign promises was to simplify, speed up housing approvals. They say that, you know, they're going to make it so it's a lot faster to get housing approved. And Ken Sim, you know, as a mayor who comes from sort of a business entrepreneurial background, clearly he's very interested in technology and efficiency. He promotes himself as kind of an efficiency expert. So the kind of thing you're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, could we have, if, if it's coming from a qu certified, qualified designers and it meets such and such, could it just be stamped and approved? And there are some municipalities that are moving towards using AI, artificial intelligence, more in their approval process. So I, I wrote a story a while ago about Kelowna. Huh. The city of Kelowna, city of Kelowna has kind of pioneered this really interesting model where they're using artificial intelligence to assess building plans. Now, you're never going to approve a big, complicated, you know, 500 unit 
you know, no. major development through that process. With AI, but for no. relatively straightforward kinds of building permits, they're trying to use AI. And the city of Vancouver is also looking at moving in that direction. Now, they've been talking, the city of Vancouver has been talking about speeding up permitting for years and years. Everyone yeah. knows it's an issue. Everyone complains mm-hmm. about this red tape. City Hall agrees it's an issue. They say they're making big strides. Um, and they, you know, periodically they'll do these updates and say, oh, we've reduced permitting times for this and this. But then when you talk to people on the ground, they're not, for the most part, they're not really seeing big improvements. So as I say, it's been a major pledge for the current mayor and council. You know, they haven't yet been in office for a year. They just, you know, still got most of their mandate ahead of them. And so that'll be a big test to see how much change can they actually make on that end um, in efficiencies and reducing red tape and speeding things up in terms of approvals. And once a plan is put in place, once something is approved, let's move forward with it being approved as opposed to going back to consultation and go back mm. to, to, yeah. to, to tooling and retooling. The boxes have been checked. The builder has a reputation. The develop, development is important in order mm. to create spaces for people to live and work. Dan Fumano, as always, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. The column's great. Thanks so much, Jody. Thanks for having me. Vance in for Mike Smith. Time to talk short-term rentals. You see the ads all the time, right? We all see the dream of, of going and staying somewhere, not necessarily a hotel, but a beautiful home. Maybe a home that you couldn't necessarily afford, but for your vacation, it feels like a dream. Have a listen to this Verbo. The thing that's different about a Verbo vacation home, you always have the whole place to yourself. No stranger at the dinner table making things awkward or in another room taking up space. It's just you and your people. Because why would you ever share your vacation home with someone you wouldn't share your vacation with? It just pulls you in, doesn't it? Short-term rental companies like Verbo, like Airbnb, they've changed the way how many travel. But it's also changed the landscape of where we live. Hotels? Have you checked the cost of a hotel lately? Nothing short of outrageous. I mean, supply and demand is real. Uh, The short-term in-home rentals are the go-to for so many. Putting those pushing, I should say, those prices uh, ever higher as well. The horse has left the barn on this file, but something's got to give because our rental stocks are being hit in a huge way. It's a large conversation to be had. We're going to, we're going to get to a corner of it here. Lenny Zhu is a Vancouver city councilor and joins me on the line to talk through what the city of Vancouver is doing with regard to short-term rentals and what might be done in the future as it has such great impacts on where we live. Lenny, thanks for doing this. Hi, Jody. Yeah, good morning. Thanks uh, for having me. Lots of stress around this subject. Um, mm-hmm. And on a provincial level, we have had, um, you know, Ravi Kalan, the Minister of Housing, speak on this. He actually, uh, in particular, spoke about mutis- municipalities being concerned about short-term re- rentals. Let's have a, a listen to Ravi. It's a big issue. Uh, it comes up often, uh, not only from Vancouver, but communities throughout the province. Uh, just yeah, yesterday, I was notified Victoria has data that they've seen a 28% increase in homes leaving for renters to uh, short-term rentals. And uh, and so there's major concerns. Even tourism-dependent communities 
which historically have said, hey, you know what, this is an important part of our, uh, our tourism economy. Now are coming to me and saying, hey, we need help because uh, they can't find places for their workers to live and uh, they can't even operate their, um, their tourism businesses. So it, it's a major issue that, uh, that we're working on right now. So that's the provincial level. And Lenny, from a city's perspective, certainly Vancouver is a world-class city. So many people want to come here and visit here. We've got cruise ships coming in. We've got a busy mm-hmm. airport. We've got busy ferries. We've got people coming in on our highway systems. We want to be a destination. But Absolutely. where are we putting people? I mean, and, and short-term rentals are, are knocking on that. Yeah, so I think the fact is that we are in a shortage of hotel space in Vancouver. So actually, short-term rental will be you know, providing us some hotel space. So from that perspective, we want to support the legal short-term rental uh, operators. In fact, we should support them more. But here we are talking about the illegal ones. As we all know, we are uh, under a housing crisis. You know, so many people across the city, they are struggling to find any, any place to live, especially for our young generations yeah. and our you know, low-income family. But some other people, they are trying to take advantage of our system or the loopholes in our system and try to make some money through the illegal short-term rental. That is not acceptable. So I think that's something we need to do, do, a, do a better job in terms of the enforcement and the regulation. So yeah, so I think in the past a few weeks, I have, uh, have done extensive research by engaging with uh, community leaders, the short-term rental operators, as well as the, as the, uh, the representatives from Airbnb and also the strata councils, media, and other elected officials, and of course our enforcement department at the city. So I, have, I think I have, a, I don't want to say I understand everything, but I think I have a pretty good understanding of what's going on here. So, you know, to answer your question, Jody, that, um, you know, there's something we can do as a municipality. I'm really pushing hard on this. For instance, we can, you know, have a better data sharing with Airbnb, and uh, maybe have, uh, you know, that's very good news. There will be a new tools uh, be available by September to facilitate the more effective and, uh, the enforcement process. Uh, I met with the team and made a few suggestions based on my 15 years uh, experience in process improvement. So I really appreciate yeah. the efforts and the willingness from the staff to explore more effective tools and really look forward to, the, uh, to seeing the implementation uh, in, in the fall. So that's what we can do We're on the th- Yeah. Yeah, I was just want just if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Lenny Zhu, the Vancouver City Councillor, who is talking about short-term rentals. Now, you talked about data sharing, important, mm-hmm. and also enforcement. Realistically, Councillor, yeah. what does enforcement look like? Because it feels like, all, well, all of us know somebody who's gaming the system, frankly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and is there is there a way to enforce that? short of having a snitch line and having it be back on, you know, the community to police itself. Cause that is, yeah, we all know people who, who had a rental and moved out of the rental, but unbeknownst to the landlord are running an Airbnb out of the rental property while they're living in another space. It's, mm-hmm. it's eating up the, the housing availability for people who need absolutely. to live and work here. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What does so enforcement also- look like? Yeah. So I think uh, there are two ways we can do for, uh, illegal short-term rental without a valid business number, they should not be getting into those platforms. So that's something I'm working really hard with the uh, Airbnb and other platforms to make sure that uh, whenever you are posting a short-term rental listing, you have to have all the valid information and license number. So that's what we can do first first step. And the second step, I think is, that would be the, you know very efficient way to do that is whenever the city identifies there is a uh, 
there is an illegal short-term rental, and we inform the uh, short-term rental platform, they should remove that immediately. But right. uh, you there know, should the, be more consequences for that. Like right now, there are very yeah, few exactly. deterrents. Like the fact that the fact that the, uh, not having the valid business number, not having the valid uh, structure in place that has been a requirement by the city, um, the, the the things, the safeguards that have been put in place, the fact that the loopholes are so easy to navigate is a big issue because we don't yeah. have a lot of people to police this, do we? Exactly. Yeah, we don't. You know, City of Vancouver, we have eight FTE to do that, to do the enforcement. But uh, I think eight. other cities, they even have less. I heard uh, City yeah. of Richmond, they only have two officers. It's not enough. You know, but, uh, you know, to yeah. answer your question, Jody, that um, uh, City of Vancouver, we have a voluntary agreement with Airbnb. So they, they, they are able to, you know, voluntarily remove the listing, but it is voluntary. So right. what we could do we is need we, to need to, we need to support from the province to regulate all platforms because the last thing we want to do is, you know, all those illegal listings going to other platforms, it wouldn't solve right. the issue. So that's why we have no power to do that as a municipality. You know, we really need to work with the province, advocate with the province to make sure they can take the leadership. So I actually wrote a letter to Premier Ibi and the Minister Ravi Kailan and the Minister Ang Kang to, for their support on this critical issue for the residents in Vancouver and, and, and across province. So I made some recommendations, rec- recommendations. so I really look forward to see their uh, feedback for this particular letter. Uh, I do have one little snippet here again of Ravi Kalan uh, on mm-hmm. Mornings with Simi. Here is what the minister says the province is doing to deal with short-term rentals. Let's listen. We've taken a couple steps. The first step was to identify where the challenges actually are, the, the challenges local governments are facing. So we partnered with UBCM, uh, the Union uh, of BC Municipalities, to uh, look at what are the challenges each community face. Because, you know, rural communities are facing different uh, issues than the cities, big cities. Uh, and then UBCM issued a report uh, earlier this year stating what their main challenges were. I mean, a lot of challenges, but I'd say fundamentally two big ones, which is one, access to data. Many communities have no idea who is uh, actually operating. Um, They don't know if they're legit, if they've actually got a business license or not. And then the the second is enforcement. When they find out somebody's got an illegal uh, short-term rental, they, they don't have the tools to do anything. So we're very much talking about the same things at multiple yeah. levels of government. And yet it feels like the act of, of really laying down the hammer here is, is slow in coming. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm really glad to see the willingness from the provincial government to take some leadership. So, in fact, I'm meeting with uh, Minister Ravi Kailong in the UBCM in September. So it is on the agenda. Excellent. So I'm going I'm to push that ask really hard. So... Yeah, so, you know, really this will be a good opportunity for us to collaborate with the provincial government so we can tackle this good. issue for the for the residents here. Lenny Zhu, uh, Vancouver City Councilor, one more question before I let you go. Any thought to creating zones? I know some places in Europe um, and even in the United States, if I'm not mistaken, have, have mm-hmm. created short-term rem- rental zones to, to, as you say, feed the necessity of, of putting visitors into spaces that hotels can no longer manage because hotels uh, haven't been maintained, particularly in this city, the way they that 
the, the demand is for them. Should we be looking at perhaps having specific zoning for short-term rentals and, and sort of outlawing um, them in, in places and spaces where we need housing for residents? Yeah, so absolutely. I've seen some news about that. So at this stage, I'm open to our idea. So any yeah. idea that would work to solve this issue, I'm open to that. And how do people get in touch with you, Lenny, if they want to give you their ideas? Well, I received a hundred email about this issue already. So people can find my contact information online, Vancouver.ca. You got my email and, uh, you know, you can reach me anytime. And or social media, direct. go to Twitter. Yeah, social media. <laughs> I'm following you on social media as well. We'll uh, find too. you there. Thanks, Thank Cody. you for your time, Counselor. Appreciate it. Thank you, Appreciate Cody. Yeah, you. thanks. Okay, bye. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Time to talk about how many jobs will evolve to incorporate green skills and how our country's success depends on our understanding this. We're welcoming to the show Linda Nazareth, an economist, an author, a podcaster. Her podcast, uh, Work and the Future, and the book is Working It Out, How to Be Ready for the Redefined Future of Work. Linda, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here, Jody. It's really quite something how change can be so scary for so many people. Just talking about shifting to a whole new genre of skills can come with a significant degree of pushback. Many reasons why we won't, we can't, we shouldn't, we should do with what works. And, and yet there's such an urgent need to, to evolve especially as we are witnessing and, and really truly feeling the effects of, of what our tried, tested, and true ways uh, are impacting our world, impacting our habitat. Can you give us um, just a little bit of a lay of the land as to, as to the, the basis of your podcast? Let's start with your podcast, and then we'll move to the book. Sure. Uh, you know, the podcast I was something I wanted to do for years. And then I guess when everything was shut down during the pandemic, I finally had a little bit of time to sit and think about it, no travel. And I thought, you know what, this is the time I want to chronicle what's going on with work. And I just decided, let's, you know, talk to people about how things are changing, what, uh, what are the big challenges, how are we going to look when we come out of this pandemic? And I started the discussions, and that was 100 episodes ago, because there's so much wow. going on, and there's so many different viewpoints of this, right, from workers, from uh, government, from organizations, from academics. You know, uh, we're all kind of figuring this out, because there's a lot changing. There is a lot changing, and as I said, change can be scary for some people. Every time I have a conversation about uh, green initiatives or climate change or what the future might look like, my inbox fills with people calling me all kinds of names instead of wanting to just say, what does that mean? What is it about? And, and we're going to have to keep having these conversations, Linda. I mean, you and I know this to be true, um, as do scientists across the globe. So can you put simply what green skills are? Because they're not as scary when you start thinking about what they are. Well, you know, whatever you want to blame it on, something's going on in the planet, right? We see floods, we see heat waves. It's not what it was five years ago, and it's not what it'll be you know, five years from now. Clearly something's happened. So if we're going to control yes. this, 
and we're going to control it as a country and as a bunch of organizations. Uh, we have to figure out what's going on. So whatever kind of company you're running, you need people who understand this and can get you ready for it. I mean, think about if you're a financial organization, you're lending money and you have to figure out, you know, what's the risk from climate? from the people you're lending to. Are are they going to be subject to floods? Uh, And you can say the same thing for just about any company. So you put that out there and you realize, well, we need a different workforce who can manage things differently. And that's even, you know, more of an issue if you're talking about running, say, an energy company where you're dealing with all kinds of change. Which does scare uh, a lot of people who might have, been long careers in fossil fuels and mining of certain things and 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 those uh less than green initiatives but could be evolved to incorporate um a new way of thinking and reimagining because when you do put a different lens on it you can look and say you know this cell phone that i'm holding in my hand requires things that are mined requires you know uh, some level of fossil fuel but how do we make it cleaner smarter better and less footprint on our environment these are the questions we come to people like you for linda nazareth is an economist and an author and podcaster working it out tell me about how to be ready for the redefined future of work well the book working it out came out earlier this year and i had written about work for years in global mail lots of places but i wanted to have it in a book post-pandemic i've written one pre-pandemic and i guess can't say post-pandemic but uh post going through two years or three years of the economy being different and people being challenged differently at work and you know what i came up with is like we are going through a bunch of the transformations, um, one's because of climate, one is because of demographics changing so much, one is because of technology, right. I mean, we're seeing this with AI, uh, and they're all happening at the mm-hmm. same time, and we're dealing with a global economy that's changing. So I, I think we're naive to think that work isn't going to change too. And we saw these dramatic changes from 2020 to 21, where people tried working at home. And we're not necessarily going with the model we went with in 2020, but at the same time, we are changing things up. Kind of everything's on the table, whether it's a four-day work week or uh, letting people work from home part of the time, doing hybrid, doing full-time, maybe going to project work and not having as many employees on the payroll. We're not necessarily going with the models we had in the 60s or 70s or or even the 1990s. I mean, this is, I think, an inflection point for us. So the book was about that. It was about that. I talked to a lot of smart people. I incorporated a lot of things from the podcast and said, like, what are the big changes and how are we going to come out from this? You know, basically, I think it's going to be a kaleidoscope of work. We are going to see a lot of different iterations of this. And we're going to go back and forth. I think it's so naive to think we told everyone to come to work two days a week and that's what we decided on. I think you're going to have a lot of change ahead. It's interesting, isn't it? The work from home. Some people love it. Some people don't. Businesses, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, you know, look at us. My dogs could bark in the background right now because I'm also work from home. Honestly, like this. But in... In 2020, though, if if I had had a work from home moment and my dog barked in the background, I would have had a panic. It's supposed to be silent when I'm on the radio. I haven't been in a studio. I've done hundreds and hundreds of radio shows. I haven't been in a studio since March 17th of 2020. It's August 2023. My my work life has changed 
incredibly over that time and evolved. And it, it was kind of a slow roll. And when I look around my my friends, my colleagues, broadcast media being a very um, swiftly evolving uh, genre, you know, one of many, every, it, it's such a global experience, isn't it, Linda, for everybody to have had some upheaval and then falling, watching the fall of the chips at landing where they may. And, and, and all of a sudden we're in a position where we're looking at work in a way that's like, what works for me with work? Instead of feeling like I yeah. need to work for the big company, I need to have a pension, I need to know, you know, that every two weeks my paycheck comes through this, da, 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 and, and many more people sort of reevaluating that job security. And it's funny that organizations are responding to that. Now, we do have a really low unemployment rate in Canada. Obviously, it depends who you are, it depends where you live, depends what right. industry you're in. For sure. But certainly with the demographics, we have, um, uh, it's a hard, harder to fill a lot of positions than it has been in a long time. So workers have a little bit of bargaining power there. Uh, if you have the right skills yeah. at the right time, you definitely have bargaining power. But so if you're trying to recruit people, if you're trying to get people to work for you and stay there, because turnover is really expensive, then you have to mm -hmm. take into account that they want flexibility, whether that's work from home or it's the ability to come in a little bit later or uh, take, you know, a different vacation than has been true in the past. Uh, you know, vacation seems to be lengthening quite a bit. The two weeks that were the norm, even in the U.S., changing up a little bit, people kind of value their lives a little differently than they did. And you are yeah. seeing organizations respond to that. I don't know. Will it last forever? It's not clear. But right now, it is a time of change for sure. Isn't it interesting, too, how employers who just a few short years ago would never consider having their people work 100% remotely, and yet somehow in many areas it was able to do just that. And the trust piece just was there and work got done. Did that, did that change yeah, how we look at work? Yeah, it's funny what's what is actually possible when you have no choice, right? We were told right, it's right, impossible right. to do this, right? And then it's right. like, oh, okay, we have to do this. Uh, and I've heard so many stories of this, Jody. Um, even I've heard about unions working together within a large organization. And the person who told me about it said, "You have no idea how dramatic that is when I tell you that that these two uh, unions had to work together to figure out hours. Usually, they were completely separate. They'd never talked to each other. And then it was revolutionary." during the pandemic we had to work a different way uh and that's yeah. just true of so many things that you know we had to change so many things up now you're seeing resistance to it i mean a lot of managers didn't like it a lot of leaders didn't like it and they're saying no no come back to the office we have to go back right. to these norms but it's hard to make that stick when you know it could be done differently. I mean, it's one thing if you had to come into work because that's where the typewriter was and it was impossible to do the work anywhere else. But now the technology lets a lot of people do things a lot of different ways. So it's not because you have to come in. It's because you're being told to come in. That's different. And when you, th when you think about those two unions working together and when they had been sort of siloed before, that made me think of, of how we also watched our various levels of government um, really not have opposition when everybody needed to pull in the same direction we did. 
And, and there's something yeah. to be said for that. It's a really cool evolution. Everybody should uh, take a moment and read Linda Nazareth's piece in the Globe and Mail. You can, you can check that out right now. It's, a, it's about how jobs will evolve to incorporate green skills uh, and Canada's success around that. Uh, the podcast, Work and the Future, the book is out and it is called Working It Out, How to Be Ready for the Redefined Future of Work. I'm going to slide that into my almost 16-year-old's hand. I'm going to just, I'm just going to pass that across the table. <laughs> just have a little read there, son. Uh, thank you for your time today, Linda. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jody. Hey, it's Jody Vance. Isn't it wild that it's only rained like two days in two months or more? It is just crazy how we are incredibly dry in the lower mainland right now. Level four drought conditions, in fact, in our little corner of the world. Uh, that is typically soaking soggy wet, famous for being a rainforest and extra damp. Yet here we are, level four drought. Do we even know what water conservation truly looks like? What it really means for each of us to do our part? We're going to spend the next few minutes talking about that with Nisha Hothi, who is the Director of Marketing and Communications with Better Business Bureau, BBB, serving uh, mainland BC and Yukon. BBB is going to help us with our water conservation tips. Nisha, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's an important topic. You know what? It's good to talk with you again. Always learn something when we connect. And and certainly in this situation, I expect that some will seem obvious, but others, I don't think people realize how much water we waste. We've been so lucky. We first of all have the best tap water on the planet for anybody who hasn't had the opportunity to travel elsewhere. We are blessed with the tap water we have, the drinking water we have here. But when we're looking at a level four drought, what should we really be mindful about as individuals here? Absolutely. I mean, we are so blessed and it's not something that we're used to dealing with. There are other countries in the no. world who obviously do deal with drought and understand water conservation in a, in a very different way. Um, I don't think that we recognize just how much water we waste. And I'll be really honest, even myself, uh, really trying to practice these tips in my own house, I've had to be very mindful and realize that I, I myself am not always being conscious of this. And so it's really simple things. I mean, we, we know the one, you know, take shorter showers and try to limit that and, you know, baths, take more water and all of that. That's true. But it, but do you think about even when you are like pre-rinsing your dishes, that the water is just running and you might be putting them into the dishwasher? Well, if you actually turned it off, what would that look like, right? What would that even mean? Um, we have a little leaky, leaky um, faucet. Do you guys realize that we waste 75 liters or more a day with just a simple drip? That's up to 2,000 no. liters a year, right? Like when we start to think about those numbers and those add up real quick. So on my block, how many leaky faucets or leaky toilets are there and how many liters of water did we just waste? And if you start to look at it from a limited resource standpoint, you will recognize where we waste water. There, I mean, there's lots of little things we can do at home. So fixing a dripping faucet or toilet, um, the fact yep. that it, 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 if even if it drips only 10 times a minute, it wastes that 2000 liters a year. That's yep. the thing that blows my mind here. Taking a shorter shower. I'm a bath person. I love a good bath. I love a good soak. I try to multi-purpose my bath. I I'll fill it lower. Um, and then I have two dogs, so they get the benefit of my fabulous shampoo. 
You know, like if you're good, multi-purpose, your gray water was something that, that I look at and I have a teenage boy who insists on the long showers and now we have a timer, <laughs> just putting a timer yeah. in the bathroom. You know what? Bang. This is how long your shower is. So absolutely. And that gray water. Yeah. No, that gray water is a big one, right? Like even if you are putting a watering can outside and, you know, no, we haven't had a lot of rain, but if you actually collect rainwater and use that for your garden and or hand water, like especially now, I mean, water yeah. restrictions are everywhere and you ha- you must follow your municipality's rules. But really, if you are hand watering, you, you will use less water than your hose or sprinkler system. That's a given. One that blew my mind, too, was that if you go to a car wash instead of a do-it-at-home instead of doing it at home, you can actually save water because the Canadian Car Wash Association shared that they are intent on being water conscious. And so the pressure washes that they use actually use less water than when we're at home. And and when I thought through that, that made sense because, you know, I just keep the hose on, it's going the whole time, you're, you're, you know, going through the tires multiple times over. So you end up using more water than if you just drive through a tunnel car wash, which Again, blows my mind. But then even the driveway, we're used to washing it down. Well, why not Why not just use a leaf blower or why don't you brush it down, right? Like sweep it down. Yeah. These Grab are other broom. ways that we Grab can. Yeah, just yeah. exactly. Grab a broom. And another one for me is the, the, dish, the, the washing machine, the dishwasher. You know, it's summertime. Kids have bathing suits that are wet. You throw them in. You think nothing of it. Well, make sure that washing machine is full, right? Like if it's just a couple bathing suits, can we wait? Can we add other items? Can we, can we really, can we really make sure that we're maximizing the use of our appliances? Absolutely. The answer to that is yes, we can. We're with Nisha Hothi, <laughs> who is the Director of Marketing and Communications, a Better Business Bureau serving the mainland BC and Yukon. One that really uh, gets me, and I honestly, almost to the level of road rage is garden rage. When at just yesterday walking home, I had a, I had a seven block walk home. I was meeting a friend uh, up the street and I passed by multiple super green grass front yards with sprinklers on. And I almost wanted to go up to the door and knock and say, can you just turn those off, please? Can we just all celebrate brown grass just for a little while here while we can serve the water? Why are, what's the obsession with the green grass when we're in a level four drought? Because there, there are ways of doing it and, and there's a way of preserving your, your green grass. It's going to come back green as soon as it gets wet in the fall. Yeah, right. <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, I think we have to recognize that there is a, there's a bit of vanity, right? We want things to look beautiful and great, but you know what? A lot of my flowers are dying because they are just over, you know, they're scorched and it is what it is. My garden doesn't look as nice as it did last year. And that's okay. You know, uh, to your point, it really is. We have to recognize that there are bigger issues at play here. Um, This isn't just about the rain that happens in summer. It's about the rain that's happened in the last few months. We do just, we just haven't had enough. And that sounds crazy, right? We're in Vancouver. How is that possible? But it's what's happening. Um, Global warming is real. We are dealing with climate change and we need to adjust with that. And if we don't make those adjustments, we are really going to deal with much stronger water conservation rules and regulations um, in the coming years. How about this one? Number four. I love number four. Fill a jug with tap water and place it in your fridge because you don't realize you do it. As a Vancouverite, as a as a Metro Vancouverite, as a as a British Columbian, you don't realize that you turn the tap on and let it run until it gets cold. Imagine how much of a first world situation that is, where people are literally going miles in search of clean drinking water, and we're just standing there letting it run, 
letting it run. Mm -hmm. Oh, now it's cold enough for me to put in my glass. We should just take a jug and put it in the fridge. Then you have cold water. You're welcome. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. This is one that I've been practicing at home. And even when I want to go run the water, I'm just immediately like, nope, it is cold enough. If I want a glass right exactly. now, be grateful for what it is. And it's good enough. Um, and I, it's such an easy, simple tip. And wow, can you save water doing this? I mean, think about, you know, through the whole summer, this is what we're doing, right? If you're not a cold, if you don't want to pull it from the fridge and you don't like that water and you're pulling it from the tap or whatever it is, I mean, if you want to use a Brita filter, if you just want to use a regular jug, it is so easy to execute. Use a jar. Use a, yeah. yeah, use a so jar. simple. Just put it in totally, a jar. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> How about this one? This is one? This is one that my mom taught me, and I'm in my 50s, so this is one my mom taught me as a small child. She would give us all kinds of heck. If we did not turn off the faucet while brushing our teeth. Holy moly. But then you see people just letting the water run, just brushing my teeth for three minutes and I'm just letting yeah. the water run. Yep. So, I mean, so the average is that people brush their teeth for about two minutes. So let's say two to three minutes, right? If you turned off that tap, you would save 30 liters of water for each use. Okay. That's up to wow. 60 a day. If you're brushing yourself, you're brushing twice a day, 750 liters a month, right? That is insane and it's the same thing with washing your face it's all of these things right like we go and we run the water and then you know we might just oh i just need to grab my my face wash but the water is still running and so you've gone running. to the you know it's yeah. all of these little little things and i i can't tell you it's just my own consciousness of saying just turn it off if my hand isn't underneath yes. it turn it off turn it off right and that yeah. is such a simple way to save liters of water and again we are we're so blessed we're so lucky in bc but if we don't take it seriously now it could, it could get worse and people who think well it won't matter with just me because <laughs> all of the big industries that are abusing our water source you know what it does matter what we absolutely do absolutely matters use, right it does absolutely matters because we are a collective right if we all take it seriously yeah. and one starts and i can convince the second person and they convince the third person we're having this conversation on air we're hopefully getting to some ears it, we need we all need to take it seriously because again it affects all of us i was mad about the car wash thing but now you've 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 turned me I was like, really? I'm very careful with my car wash. I don't leave the hose running the whole time. I use the spray nozzle at the end. I, I like the process. It's, it's therapeutic. But now that I know that they are water conservationists uh, when, they, when they're doing these car washes, I'll take it to the car wash. You won me over, Nisha. So there you go. Check that <laughs> It box. was a new one for me, too. I had to I double-checked the research. I was like, really? So, I mean, it, I it's, it's crazy. But we, we got to do all the things, right? Whatever we can do. And if you're going to do. do it at home, again, just be conscious. The things you just said, turn off the hose, use a spray nozzle, yeah. be mindful, right? The mindfulness mindful. is really what we're asking. Nisha Hothi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.